How are we doing this morning? Are we excited to be in the house of the Lord? I'm excited because I get the privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, Mark, uh, had, he had the honor and the privilege this weekend to marry uh, what he said to me was his second daughter, the uh, close friend with father, and his daughter's close friends with the bride. So he was away this weekend um, being a part of that special moment in her life. Um, and so I get this special moment to be with you and with us in this moment of life. And I wanted us this morning to start with this question. Who in here has ever felt powerless, just completely desperate without hope? I know I have, and I know that this is one of those situations in life we find ourselves in quite often. For me, growing up, I grew up with a father who uh, was a man of unexpected adventures. You never knew what a Saturday was going to hold. There was often a knock at 5 o'clock in the morning on my door, and I, of course, wanted to sleep, and he wanted to get going. And it didn't matter whether it was a day of fishing or a day of hopping from car dealership to car dealership, not to buy cars, but to get free hot dogs. We were going to go on an adventure. And this is just the way he kind of did life. And it was, you never knew what to expect. So one day he came home with this gutted out boat. And in the back of his truck was two motors. And he says, the top end of this one's good and the bottom end of this one's good. And we're going to make a motor. And I'm sitting there going, okay, dad, you're not a mechanic. We've never had a boat. We've never done fiberglass repair. But over the next couple of months, we sat out, we gutted the boat. We repaired all of the fiberglass. We figured out from books, because this is before you look things up on Google and videos, how to repair. We looked at books of mechanics of exploded out engine parts and try to put things together and see if it would turn on and not. And eventually we got that motor running, got it attached to the boat and got it out into the lake. My dad grew up water skiing and he wanted an experience for his boys. So me and my brothers and him were out in the middle of the lake and he starts teaching us how to go water skiing. And we're all little, you know, I was probably the oldest. I was like 13 or so. And so we're just little bean poles, not hard to get up out of the water, get up, get going, get skiing. And then towards the middle of the day, my dad's like, okay, I'm going to get up there. I'm going to show you how this really goes. So adult sized person gets in the water, gets behind this boat and my brother hits it Nothing happens. My dad is sitting there in the water, and it's not going anywhere. We're not making any forward progress. So my dad says, push it harder. And so my brother puts the throttle all the way down, and all we hear is boom as the engine explodes. And we are in the middle of the lake. My dad's in the water, and our boat is dead and not going anywhere. And so we're looking around. Shore's far away. My dad swims into the boat. And he opens up the hatch, and there is one paddle. And he says, I guess we're going to start paddling. And so at that moment, it was a complete feeling of powerlessness as we took turns paddling with this little paddle to shore. And so it begs this question, how do we respond in moments of powerlessness? And so we're going to look at several passages of scriptures. Eventually, we're going to end and land and camp out in Hebrews 11. But y'all travel with me for a little bit. John 6, in John 6, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that I think sets up um, the scene for Jesus and his disciples and helps us frame this conversation of powerlessness. And John 6 is the story where Jesus 
um, has fed the 5,000. He's been teaching all day. The people are hungry. There's at least 5,000 men there. And then that we have to account for women and children. So there's more than 5,000 people. And the disciples say they're hungry. And then there's the, hey, we've got some fish and some bread from this young man. And Jesus prays. And all are fed. And so as we come to the end of that, there's this conversation that happens, this scene that happens starting in verse 14. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we've been expecting. And when Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Now, this is one of those passages of scripture for me that just makes, me, makes it clear to me that Jesus is a ninja. Jesus, over and over again, is around a crowd. They want to make him king. He slips away or there's an angry mob, and somehow he just walks through the middle of them. But that's beside the point. I just want to make sure you knew that Jesus was a ninja. But here is this crowd surrounding Jesus, and they want him to be king. These people find themselves in a desperate situation, in a powerless situation, oppressed by Rome. And they wanted desperately for a physical kingdom of God, a physical king to deliver them, to revolt from their oppressor, return the land, and rule God's people. The people sought a kingdom of God the only way that they understood, a source of power for the here and now, but Jesus walked away. So we hear their hunger, we hear their cry and that, but let's compare that with this picture Jesus gives us in Matthew 5 of who's in his kingdom. He starts to kind of push this out to his disciples at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount through the series of statements we call the Beatitudes. And here Jesus starts to flesh this out and he says in verse 3, 5 starting verse 3, God blesses those who are poor in spirit and realize their need for him for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who are dependent on God, those who are absolutely desperate. Then he goes on and he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Those who are broken by this world, those who have been experienced injustice, those who are grieved by their sin, those who are grieved by loss, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are those who are humble, those who are meek, those who have been oppressed, and in the midst of their oppression, they don't lash out. Instead, they cling to God. They cling to God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, or maybe your Bible says justice. Those who desperately want God's way to be their way, to do life God's way, for the world around them to be done according to God's will. And then he says, God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. These who notice the broken places around them, the oppressed places around them, and they stepped into others hurting and have mercy, for they will receive mercy. Blessed those who have hearts are pure. Blessed are those hearts are pure. For these are the ones that resist temptation, who do life God's way. Blessed are those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. And God blesses those who are persecuted for doing the right thing. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Those who said, no matter what, I am going to do life God's way, even if it costs me everything. 
These eight groups of people who are in the kingdom of heaven weren't the religious leaders. They weren't the government leaders, the wealthy, the elite. Jesus points out, he's saying all these people who look like they're in charge and have everything figured out. Instead, he points to these people who seem to have out-of-control situations in their life, but they had an in-control faith. And that's what we're talking about this morning, is having an in-control faith in an out-of-control world. The author of Hebrews in, Hebrew, in Hebrews 11 gives us a similar glimpse as Jesus did. He starts to unpack, as Jesus unpacked these folks who he said, this, take note, these are who are in the kingdom. The author of Hebrew for us gives us a glimpse into faith. And we call this sometimes the Hall of Faithful, or we have different names for it. But I want us to take a look at this passage in Hebrews 11. The author starts out and gives us this definition that faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man, and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. For before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. And it was impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to me must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about the things he had never happened before, that had never happened before. And by faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land, God promised him he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner, a refugee, living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. It was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child. Though she was barren and was too old, she believed that God would keep his promise. And so a whole nation came from this one man who was as good as dead. A nation with so many people that like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, there is no way to count them. All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They didn't receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they are looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. 
It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted, Abraham reasoned that even if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. In a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. It was by faith that Isaac promised blessings for the future to his sons, Jacob and Esau. It was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. He even commanded them to take his bones with them when they left. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Instead, he chose to share the oppression of God's people and, and not enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking ahead to great reward. It was by faith that he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. And it was by faith that Moses commanded the people of Israel to keep the Passover and to sprinkle blood on the doorposts so that the angel of death would not kill their firstborn sons. And it was by faith that the people of Israel went right through the Red Sea as though they were on dry ground. But when the Egyptians tried to follow, they all drowned. And it was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days and the walls came crashing down. It was by faith that Rahab, the prostitute, was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received with what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, escaped death by the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. So, y'all weren't expecting me to read the whole chapter, I expect. But here's the thing, is that as I started preparing and I was thinking about this, because we're going to be talking about verse 35. The end of verse 35 is actually where we're going to camp out here in a second. But as I started thinking about what we're going to talk about with verse 35, and I was just going to give you a, a, a broad brushstroke of this chapter before, but it just fell hollow. Because here, this picture that the author of Hebrews paints is so vivid and so real, and it recalls these stories of faith. And one of the things that is interesting to me about each of these stories is that these folks all experience God do some amazing things in their lives. And they had faith. God promised, they had faith, and God did something. But then in this passage in Hebrews, there's a but. And I think it's very important to pay attention to the buts in the Bible because it's a very powerful word. And here in 35, we get one of those buts. And I think it turns the whole entire conversation on its head. And this is what it says. But others 
were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prison. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. Others were killed with a sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had something better in mind for us, so they would not reach perfection without us. So here in verse 35, there's this pivot point. And often I think that whenever, I know for me personally, when I've heard this passage taught, I've heard and I've studied on my own, the kind of 35 is where you end. And all these women receive their children back from the dead. And 35, the second half, kind of becomes this tagline. Like, there's all these people who had great faith, and look at all the awesome stuff that God did. Oh, yeah, and then there's some other people over here, and they died for their faith. They had good faith, but we never really see what was promised to them. But instead, I think here, the whole picture is a crescendo of faith. It's as God starts unpacking this, hey, I'm coming, I'm restoring, redeeming humanity, participate with me. We see people responding over the years, over the generations, and then we get to this place where all this has been promised to them. I will work. I will make this heavenly homeland. I'm calling you home. There's this eternal city. All of these promises we get here in Hebrews 11, and then we come to those who never even got a glimpse. Those who the world around them was so against God and God's way that when they chose to walk down that path, everything was against them to the point where their very lives was taken from them. And what faith that is. Their faith being so contrary to their cultural climate and government's way of thinking that they were not even worth life to the people around them. And so when we contrast the faithful people from Matthew 5 and Hebrews 11, it becomes clear how this crowd around Jesus missed it, how they were opining for a political and religious here and now power, and who could blame them? This group living underneath heavy political pressure and oppression They wanted to experience God's kingdom now like they had heard their ancestors had before. But Jesus taught and lived out how to have this in-control faith in an out-of-control way. And the thing is that it didn't take him to an earthly throne. It took him to the cross. And so as we think about that, as we consider that, I want you to think about the Israelites and how the people surrounding Jesus, this wasn't anything new. This wasn't a new problem, this idea of wanting God's kingdom here and now. The Israelites had always struggled to see their national identity as more than their present day. The Israelites' impression longed for the return of their physical kingdom. In that period of history between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Maccabees led a revolt to fight for a new kingdom. The disciples and the crowds that around Jesus longed for him to be that 
Messiah in the here and now. And this misunderstanding becomes and became a delusion, a delusion that the kingdom of God was physical and temporal, limited to the here and now. The delusion endured and carried over into Christianity at the conversion of the Emperor Constantine, the Holy Roman Empire, physically possessing the world, forcing converts and Christian rule. During the medieval ages, we have the crusaders trying to bring Christian converts, the kingdom of God by the sword. And in more modern Christian history, we've attached and seen Christians attach their faith to colonialism and militarism to convert the world by political and military power. And somewhere along the way, as this delusion of a physical kingdom of God realized right now, played out in our Western Christian community, we forgot how to have an in-control faith in an out-of-control world. We've forgotten how to be the church outside of political power and moral majority. For the first 200 years of the church, there was no power. They lived their faith outside of earthly power, earthly political power. And as little as 300 years ago, Baptists were completely outside of any earthly power, rejecting any connection between church and state. And as we think about that and we think about the history and the way this cry out for a physical kingdom, for a political power comes to us, Jesus recognized that in the people around him and he gave them this warning. John chapter 9, if you want to flip over there, we're only going to be there for a brief second. Um, But John chapter 9, there's this interesting interaction between him and his disciples. As they were walking along, there was a blind man. He had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? And Jesus answers, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I'm here in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus warns, the night is coming. How do we respond when the night hits? I remember whenever I was 11 years old, sixth grade, first time in Boy Scouts, camping out on a Friday night. My dad wasn't there for the first time ever at a camp out. We were playing a night game. I forgot my flashlight. I borrowed it from one of my friends, borrowed an extra flashlight from my friends. We're running through West Texas, up and down to the little dry riverbeds. No moon that night. And I got bumped into. My flashlight hit the ground, crashed into a million pieces. And, you know, growing up, I was a crier. So the hot tears started coming down my face. I'm terrified. The night is just crushing in. I'm filling around the dirt trying to find all the pieces. I've got them all there. I shove them all back together, screwed on. I'm like, I hear everybody, the crowd of scouts going further and further away. And I'm feeling like, I have no idea where camp is. I get this flashlight. I'm like, it's going to work. And I turn it on and nothing happens. Nothing happens. The light didn't come on. And there I was, feeling the weight of that darkness. And Jesus warns his disciples, the night is coming. But in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 that we were there a moment before, he also makes a promise for his disciples. You are the light of the world. The night is coming, but you are the light of the world. And recently I read one of the most challenging testimonies um, that I've ever read. 
Corey Tim Boom's The Hiding Place. Stephanie read this book and she was reading it and she was like, you've got to read this because I want to talk to you about it. This is awesome. There's, and she would bring up some different points from it and she's like, you just hurry up and read it. So I sat down a couple of Sundays ago and I spent a Sunday afternoon, read the book. It's a really fast read once you get into it. It's an amazing book. I highly recommend it. But as uh, the story unpacks, the gist of it is this. Corrie ten Boom, her sister, her father, hid Jews in the Netherlands during the Nazi, Nazi occupation, and it ended them up being in a concentration camp. But as I read Corey's testimony, it wasn't just this, uh, the heroics of their family that struck me, but it was who this family was and who they were before the war. They were a family of faith. And their faith was brought into every aspect of their life. Corey grew up in a house that was always full of people, not just business clients and friends, but folks who needed a warm meal, who needed friendly faces. Her mother was in the business of caring for others. It talks about countless times where she hears of a need, the mother hears of a need, and she rushes out with a hot meal or just some warm clothes or whatever and takes care of all the families in their community. As Corey and her sister grow older, they don't marry. And as adults, they're there with their father. Their mother's passed. Their aunts have passed. Their siblings have left the house. And now the house starts to be empty. But it didn't stay empty for long because their mother's work, their family's work in the community, reaching out to these needs, quickly children start knocking on the door. Family members start knocking on the door. Hey, these kids have nowhere to go. Sure. And they begin to foster children Child after child in their house for the next 10 years is not full, but is, or is not empty, is completely full. As kids are sleeping in every bed and every nook and cranny, caring for these foster kids, raising them. And then that day arrived that German soldiers began patrolling the street and neighbor turned on neighbor because of religion and heritage. And it was only natural for the tin booms to open their home. They became the epicenter for an underground resistance to protect Jews in their community. Corey Tim Boone and her family are clear examples to me what it means to shine light in the midst of darkness. I think the Tim Boone's act of love strikes us, but I think it might strike us even more if we put it in this kind of a question. How many of us would be willing to hide a Muslim in our home as our neighbors pounded the streets hunting them down. But it isn't even the heroics that stand out to me. Corey describes this decision to protect her Jewish neighbors as only natural. It flowed out of her faith, flowed out of her way of living. What stands out to me and challenges me is how this family who daily lived out God's love in such a tangible and self-sacrificial way was just ready for the next thing that God had for them whether it was a good time for them or a bad. This is how they chose to shine light in the darkness. They always had open hearts and open doors. And this morning, as we pick up our Bibles and we look at it, if we say that this, the story of God and his coming towards humanity, his redemption, his love for us is compelling, we need to consider the way that we live it out. All too often, We clamor around as if this is a secret 
That might be found out. That might be proven false. Or as if we're a used car salesperson anxiously trying to make a month's quota. Like a tug-of-war team clinging desperately to a rope, knowing if we even slip an inch, the whole competition is over. But here, as we heard in Hebrews 11, as we unpacked life after life after life, we heard that we have something that's beyond here, beyond now. That we have a confidence because we have victory. We have residency in a forever kingdom. And we have a king who is the king of kings. And so as I wrestled through this passage of Hebrews 11, the question for me started becoming, when did my faith, when did our faith become so anemic? When did we become so afraid? What does it mean to live our faith outside of earthly power? I started asking myself these questions. What does it mean to live out my faith in a world where I don't have control? I don't have power. A world where I'm in the minority. I can't make demands on the world around me. Am I sitting around and opining for the good old days when all was as God wanted it to be? Do I long for the day when we'll have the right president, the right governor, the right policies in place, a day again when schools will start each day with prayer and the pledge and the Bible is taught, as if a change in government will fix the spiritual condition of our nation, neighbor, and world, or am I on my feet raising awareness about human trafficking, working to bring racial reconciliation, Wow. Reconciliation, helping refugees flee horrific atrocities, giving a home to the thousands upon thousands of children growing up without families, seeking out the hungry, sick, lonely, investing in children's and teenagers, raising up the next generation of God followers. On and on we can go about what kingdom work is. It's as diverse as the people God created. But Hebrews 11 reminds us that the kingdom of God that we long for and that we strive for is here now with us as Jesus' followers. But even more, it's fully yet to come. It is undeniable that our American society is shifting away from God and his kingdom values. And when you hear me say this, at first, I know for me what pops in my head is the ways that we excuse sin. And we say sin is normal and sin is okay. But also, I think as we challenge this and we think about how we shift away from God and his values, I consider how us as a society, how quick we are to dehumanize and speak against those who act and think different than us. We must heed the warning of Jesus, the night cometh. And remember, he also said, you are the light of the world. For a long time, the church in America has been a battery in the flashlight of a society and government that has appeared Christian. But now we find ourselves standing in the middle of a dark field holding a warm battery. As we feel the cold darkness settle in, we have a decision. Do we stand here and fiddle with this flashlight that no longer works? That is, do we try to force our government, our school districts, our neighbors to see and live out a biblical worldview? Or do we relearn the identity given to us by Jesus that we, we the church, are the light of the world. We shine in the darkness. 
Recently, Stephanie and I were up in the youth room working on some stuff, and we were listening to Spotify. I listened to one of our favorite uh, musicians, Andrew Peterson, and it did the thing it always does where it shuffles, and it shuffles to a commentary album, and you're like, why? I don't want to hear you talk. I want to hear you sing, right? You know, like, you're, I don't know if you're like that. I don't like to hear people talk when they're supposed to be singing. And so I'm like, all right. And so I go over there to skip it, and about this time, Andrew Peterson starts talking about a small group that he's a part of with his church. And in that, a question that they start their small group with struck me. Each time that they gather and they meet, they ask themselves, what have you done this week to roll back the curse? What have you done this week to roll back the curse? And the curse, of course, they're talking about is Genesis 3, the curse of sin, this brokenness of humanity. What have you done, in essence, to this week join God in his work of redemption and restoration? What have you done this week to be light in the darkness? And I think this morning, this question captures in a nutshell what we've been talking about, what we've seen in Matthew 5, what we've seen in Hebrews 11. As Christ followers, we can be sidelined so easily by losing earthly power in the government and forgetting and being paralyzed by noticing that the worldview around us doesn't look like the Bible, realizing that the worldview of the majority around us places us in the minority, and that can paralyze us? Or are we, like the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, finding confidence in the future, finding confidence in these promises of God, where we can be certain that all will be made right? But now, in the midst of of this broken world, living like blazing torches as the night envelops us, living with the question of what will I do today to roll back the curse as our daily charge? What will I do today to roll back the curse? Let's pray. God, we just thank you for uh, this, these people who went before us who have lived faithful lives in a way that push us and challenge us. And God, as we live in times that often do frighten us, that break our heart, that grieve us, as we see people rebel from you, as we see people live far from you, as we see hate and sin, it just crushes us, Father. We pray that you would Help us rise to our feet and say, I will live up to this charge of you are my light. God, as we step into that darkness tomorrow, as we step out of this room where we can come together and we can turn to you and ask you to speak to our hearts, God, that you would challenge us, that you put people in our minds, that you put situations on our minds, that you would draw to us our passions that you have placed on us that you want to use to spread light and that we will be your light in the world that we encounter this week. And we pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.